0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In her fascinating and path-paving new book, Indian Muslim Minorities and the 1857 Rebellion, Religion, Rebels and Jihad, Elise Morgenstein-First, Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Vermont, reorients our understanding of the 1857 Rebellion in India while offering a nuanced theorization of religion, religious identity, and questions of violence. The title of this book announces the key terms and conceptual pillars that sustain it throughout, religion, rebels, and jihad. The brilliance of this book lies in the way it raises and addresses a number of critical questions regarding memory, formations of religious identity, and conceptions of religion as a category through the close and energetic reading of a single event. This book is intellectual history at its fiercest. Nimbly written, it will also make an excellent text for undergraduate and graduate seminars. Here now is my conversation with Professor Elise Morgenstein first. Hello, Elise. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, Shirley. How are you?
0: Uh, Very good, Elise. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for your time on uh, new books in Islamic studies. Really looking forward to this conversation on this wonderful uh, and exciting new book. Uh, indian muslim minorities and the 1857 rebellion Um, as you know at least we have a a tradition on new books and islamic studies that our first question is always biographical Uh, could you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar of islam scholar of uh, south asia could you share with us a bit about your uh, journey uh, the narrative of how you became a scholar uh, interested in these topics
1: of course. And I have to say that I love the tradition on the podcast. When I assign these podcasts to my students, this is the part they always talk about the most. Um, so I, I frankly wish they would pay more attention to the book part, but I, I like that the genealogy of the scholar plays into how they imagine scholarship. So for me, I actually got my start at Colgate University. I was studying with um, Professor Omid Safi. And uh, I had the misfortune or the good fortune of being in his class on 9-11. And a class that had been one of, you know, interest and curiosity became something that felt um, incredibly salient and pressing, but also a really important way to feel connected at a time when having grown up in the New York metropolitan area with half of my family living in the city. It just felt like an important thing to be reading about. And not not even Islam, but just religion generally. It was an intro to religion class, I should specify. And... Um, because I quite liked Omid's classes, I kept taking them, and because I was a scholarship kid, I was allowed to study abroad anywhere that Colgate had a program, and it just so happened that Colgate had a program in India, and as a kid in college who had never had a passport, I thought that that sounded, boy, so exotic and so special, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to share that because it kind of rubs against my own, um, forays into the scholarship of Orientalism, colonialism, exotification. But the truth of the matter was, is that I was 19, 20 years old, didn't have a passport and felt like if Colgate was going to pay for me to go anywhere, it should be somewhere really cool. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I lived with, um, a Hindu family who had named their children after, um, people who i had assumed were muslim venerated people like ali and so this kind of tripped for me a set of research questions about um what at the time i saw in terms of syncretism but have later you know simply thought about as cultural praxis and from there i kind of just kept going
0: terrific So uh, the book is titled "Indian Muslim Minorities and the 1857 Rebellion," and the and the sort of the subheading is "Religion, Rebels, and Jihad." And we'll have a chance to talk about each of these key categories uh, as they are presented and analyzed in your book. But as the first question, I was wondering, at least if you could begin by sort of framing the project a bit uh, for our listeners, sort of the key sort of thematic or argument that animates it. I found it very interesting that you take an event in in South Asian history, in world history, in fact. The 1857 rebellion, and you connect that event to much larger theoretical questions in religious studies, in the study of South Asian religions, in South Asian Islam, etc. So you do that very masterfully by taking one event and then asking much broader questions from it. So I was wondering, as a first sort of uh, sort of framing uh, kind of a question, could you sort of share with us what's the key sort of thematic or argument that you uh, broadly pursue uh, in this in this book?
1: That is a great question. So the key thing that I'm thinking about as I tell a story about the 1857 rebellion is how Muslims come to be known in a very particular way, um, first in South Asia and then more broader on the global scale. And for me, that that particularity is a process of minoritization and racialization. And so the key argument of the book is that in the wake of this rebellion, we see a solidification of Muslims as necessarily violent, rebellious, seditious, and ultimately jihadi because of the events of the rebellion. So it's it's a way, It's a, in some ways, it's a circular historical process, right? So this event happens people start to write about it and think about it. And in the process of writing and thinking about it, the memory of it becomes uniquely tied to Muslims. And that tying of a memory uniquely to Muslims also ties a certain interpretation to Muslims. So what I'm interested in is historiography and how those classifications come to play out. And it just so happened that this particular event in 1857-1858 is a really great way to tell the story of how Muslims become minoritized and racialized in a very specific way.
0: Terrific. So, so let's begin with the first aspect or the first sort of key term uh, that uh, uh, grounds this project, the idea of religion. And you know, this is a really massive question, but again, you address this really broad question by the, the very specific example of the rebellion, which is the question of how the category of religion was regulated and uh, managed by the British uh, colonial uh, government. Uh, So could you give us some kind of a historical context? I'm primarily referring to the first chapter of this book, The Company, Religion, and Islam, of what are some of the ways in which religion as a category was, as you put it, policed uh, in this uh, late 19th century context, and then how that policing of the category of religion connects to the uh, rebellion, this event of 1857, Rebellion.
1: Yeah, so that is a really big question. I will do my best to answer it um, clearly and briefly. The chapter you're referring to is the chapter where I try my best to give as much of a story and a narrative that folks unfamiliar with India, with the East India Trading Company, with the 19th century broadly can sort of sink their teeth into this very messy set of skirmishes, rebellions, Um, bloodshed, massacres, but also all of the laws and um, regulations that had led up to this space. So um, to be brief about it, the British were really concerned, first under the auspices of the East India Company and later as an imperial force, with knowing their constituencies, let's call it. Certainly they're subjects in some cases, but they're constituencies. And one of the easiest ways to do this was to think about religious subjects. So um, Muslims needed to be identifiable as such, and they needed to fit certain classifications that could be made understandable, not just to British um, authorities in India, but to the broader imperial project. And so um, leading up to the 1857 rebellion, we saw the East India Company treat religion with kid gloves. No one wanted to, it was often described or in the newspapers I've read, they describe it um, it, it with a lot of natural terms. There's a lot of references to things like hornet's nests, right? You don't want to mess with a hornet's nest. And so we need to know it's there. We should know that they're hornets, but let's not play around with this too much because you're going to anger up the the hornets inside. And religion for the East India Company functions in this way. We don't want to upset it. It could sting us. Um, shall I keep going on religion? Sure. As you,
0: absolutely. If you, absolutely. Uh, okay.
1: Um, at the same time, however, Folks knew that this this category was salient, so you don't want to ignore what is there, and we don't. But we also don't want to bother with it. We don't want to upset religious sensibilities in in any major way. And things start to change over the course of the nineteenth century, particularly after um, the the Charter Act of eighteen thirteen, which more or less allows religion to to play more of a role in day-to-day life. So things like missionaries being allowed in a sanctioned way as opposed to an under-the-table kind of way. And we start to see um, things that will later be called grievances against uh, so-called indigenous religions, right? So uh, orphanages set up where children are raised as Christian, but obviously without parental supervision because it's orphanages, and so the stripping of culture and language, all these sort of broad critiques of colonialism and imperialism that we see in other parts of the world functioning here, but specifically within a realm of religious identity. The British were really keen to make sure that they knew Hindus were different than Muslims and that these folks separated out into categories that felt neat and tidy, even when their reporters on the ground were recorded other sets of realities and that collapsing of categories into umbrella terms matters for the for the way that the rebellion and its memory um becomes recorded
0: now the next uh, two chapters uh, in very fascinating ways focus on this argument that you make about the minoritization of indian muslims and you look at two uh, authors uh, who might seem very different, W.W. Uh, Hunter and uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan, but you show some very interesting convergences between them. And the convergence that you argue for is precisely the way in which both of these authors, while seemingly opposed to each other, nonetheless uh, engage the question of rebellion in a way that minoritized uh, the Indian Muslim community. So it's a really new uh, way of looking at these two authors. Um, so let's perhaps go uh, step by step by looking at these two uh, separately. Uh, let's begin with W.W. Uh, w. Hunter and his book, The Indian Muslims. Um, so so in what ways do you show that this uh, sort of uh, text uh, produces a certain kind of a minoritized Muslim subject? Could you sort of uh, shed light on this aspect of your argument uh, in relation to Hunter's uh, text? Yeah.
1: Sure. So um, I suppose I should start with a really brief definition. I think minoritization is used in a lot of different ways. The way that I use it is to think about how Muslims were systematically um, denied power and access through the implementation of British imperial power. So Muslims have never been a majority in terms of demography in South Asia, as you well know, but they had had quite a lot of power, as as we see in imperial structures like the Middle Empire, the Delhi Sultanate, etc. Not to mention you know, spheres of wealth and, it's, and, it's, and such. So the minoritization piece here is, for me, the transition from Muslim elites being elite within a Muslim or a um, or a mogul system, and that we can have a conversation as to whether those are interchangeable, to, the, to needing to be subservient to, and therefore reflexive around British imperial power. And the way that I think Hunter does this, in this kind of ridiculous book, I mean, the Indian Muslims is one of those books that I think scholars wave around as this quintessential um, 19th century colonial tome. But we don't get past the title because it's the Indian Muslims, colon, are they bound in conscience to rebel against the queen, question mark. And then in something like 300 pages, uh, the answer is yes, they are totally bound in conscience to rebel against the queen. And let me tell you why. And the ways in which Um, I see this book as creating a Muslim minority is how Hunter kind of systemically and systematically, so systemically, because he works for the state, he's commissioned to write this book. Um, And so, like, it is, I, as he calls it in, I think in the preface, he calls it a Mm demi-official work of the crown. And so it's a a systemic kind of pronouncement about Muslims in India, but it's also systematic. He goes point by point through Muslim law books and Quranic exegesis, now cherry picking what he feels like, but it looks like a very well-researched tome. And in so doing, he sort of crafts a very particular version of a Muslim Who ought not to have power, who never really had full control over South Asia in the first place, and whose um, status ought to be reconsidered completely. And he does that in parallel to making claims about inherent and transmittable, almost biological characterizations of Muslims, um, like being inherently suspicious or bound to rebel against the queen so there's a, a simultaneous process of racialization alongside this minoritization
0: uh, terrific yeah you I know mean, I realize I'm sort of having you uh, uh succinctly uh summarize some very uh, complex uh analysis that you've done in these chapters uh but but that's uh, in, uh, really useful uh, let's perhaps shift the focus to saydam mathhan because that is the the next uh, chapter of the book, and, and, and you analyze uh, Sayyid Ahmed Khan's, or for some, Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan's uh, uh, response to W.W. W. Hunter, and you also look at his other uh, text on the causes of the uh, Indian revolt. Um, and again, although a very different author, but you show that there is a similar process of uh, minoritization that is at work, even in this kind of a text by a Muslim author responding to this uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, British... Uh, uh, author like w. w. Hunter. So how does this process of minor, minoritization work in the case of Sayyid Ahmed Khan? Uh, how do you sort of see this a similar kind of a process at work here?
1: Yeah, so I, one of the things that is really important to me in this book and in my research broadly is thinking about how the legacies of colonialism and imperialism and the, the, the offspring of those Um, big categories, like racial categories, like categories of religion, Mm -hmm. are pernicious systems and hegemons. So it is hard for someone like Sayyidamud Khan, despite deeply resisting some of Hunter's claims, to escape the languages that are thrust upon him. So He is both resisting and participating in the very categorization and labeling that, um, that Hunter sets out, right? Like, the way I've tried to describe it is that Hunter had set, um, in this little exchange between them, and it's not a proper exchange. Hunter writes Indian Muslims and Khan writes, um, years later, the review of indian Muslims. So it's not a direct conversation, but one can imagine them in conversation. It's certainly how um, Saeed Amin Khan wanted us to to read them. Hunter set the rules of the game and he named the game, right? Hunter said, we're playing tennis. And Saeed Amin Khan is hitting the ball back as hard and as fast as he can. But Saeed Amin Khan did not say, sorry, we're not playing tennis. We're playing cricket or we're playing We're not playing a game at all. We're having a conversation. So in some ways, Sayed Ahmed Khan becomes trapped in the game that someone else has set. And for me, that analogy, while a little bit showing how much of a jock I wish I was, um, it kind of sets the terms of how Sayed Ahmed Khan unknowingly or unwittingly participates in further entrenching the very terms and the very understandings of his community even as he's trying to argue against them, because he's only using the the language that, that Hunter sets out. And certainly we see examples of this in other places, right? Audrey Lord very famously calls this using the master's tools. And if you use the master's tools, you can't really escape the master in a certain way.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, but continue, did I uh, uh, interrupt you there, at least?
1: No, I wanted to make sure I answered your question oh, you about how not. his... okay
0: absolutely right. and, and the sort of uh, as i said this the way in which you look at the convergence between these two very different authors is something very novel in the historiography this is really really interesting uh actually before we get to the next uh, sort of theme of this book which is jihad and which you really elaborate in the chapter 4 a question that actually just came to my mind Elise, as i was thinking back to the uh, introduction of the book which is that um you know this event of 1857 as you mentioned Uh, is given different names by different people, depending on their vantage point, depending on on how they look at this particular moment. It's called the War of Independence or the Mutiny, etc. But you chose uh, as uh, the descriptor for this event, the 1857 Rebellion. And you have a very interesting discussion in the introduction about why you chose this particular description as opposed to others. Could you share with our listeners uh, sort of the stakes of how you named this event and what went into your decision of calling it the rebellion, eighteen fifty-seven rebellion.
1: Yeah, so I think I count maybe six or seven, mm-hmm. six or seven ways that people name uh, what I'm calling the Great Rebellion or the eighteen fifty-seven rebellion. So most commonly, especially um, for British listeners or British readers, the Sepoy Mutiny or the Indian Mutiny. Some folks call it the Uprising or specifically the uprising of 1857. Sometimes you'll see Sepoy, which really means soldier, um, Sepoy rebellion, Sepoy revolt. You see Hindu nationalists in particular calling it the Indian War of Independence or the First War of Independence. And then you see a lot of authors, and I talk about this in various parts of the book, calling it the Muslim or the Mohammedan um, Rebellion. So, it goes by a million different names, seemingly. And I think that words are important and that language expresses power. Um, and so, I don't want it to sound like a semantic argument that gets us nowhere, but I do think there's something really telling in calling it, say, a mutiny as opposed to a rebellion, right? A mutiny often, if not singularly, refers to soldiers. Um, rising up against a commanding officer or rising up against uh, a leader of some kind. And so historically, thinking about the Sepoy mutiny, that almost limits its impact. And it sort of locates this as a bunch of soldiers who didn't like their commanding officer, didn't like the rules of the commanding officer, didn't like the commanding officer's commanding officer, right? There's a million ways that we can think about that militaristically, but that's really limited. And the rebellions and the massacres and the skirmishes certainly spread outside of that community quite quickly. So I don't even think it's historically, it doesn't capture what we want it to capture. And I think that rebellion... um, it gets at what folks wanted it to be, right? Folks wanted it to be something that really challenged and resisted increasing imperial, uh, British imperial advances. It signifies something much more widespread, but not necessarily organized. So I I don't want to give the impression that this was a grand conspiracy of leaders in India who organized like a well-fought militia, these were skirmishes and small massacres and small events that sort of rippled effect across North India in particular over the course of about a year. And in various points in that year, the British were not convinced they would win. And so I want the power of that and the fear of that and the... um largesse of that to be, to be made clear and to remove it simply from the militaristic, like highlighting sepoy or mutiny, and also um, to honor what the sources themselves say. So most of the sources that are written in India, whether by British authors or um, Anglophile authors or um, Indian authors, talk about it as a rebellion or a revolt and not as a mutiny.
0: Now, the the next sort of chapter and the next key category of this book, Jihad, uh, you show really brilliantly the way in which Jihad serves as the conceptual key that connects uh, the theme of minoritization with that of racialization. That sort of serves as the sort of conceptual glue that brings these two uh, themes uh, together. So I was wondering if you could say a bit about how this idea of Jihad, uh, especially in the context of the 1857 rebellion, um gets deployed in, in forming a certain kind of an image of the Indian Muslim as unruly, as always uh, a source of threat, etc. What you eventually call the racialization of the Indian Muslim subject. So how do you connect the category of jihad with this broader process of racialization? Um,
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question, and you're right. It's the linchpin of my argument. So using Hunter primarily and and Said Amun Khan um, as a supporting character there, Hunter, among other um, British authors, uh, keep coming back to this issue of jihad. So at some point in their writings, either about the rebellion or about why rebellion is still a threat, they keep coming back to this issue of jihad and they'll cherry pick quotes um out of the quran where they can but mostly they cite all sorts of um fatwas seemingly from a range like of all over um anywhere where muslims have written anything so it's like um as a scholar it's hilarious in its ridiculousness where these folks got their sources from like Tenth century Arabia. Someone declared jihad, and so, you know, God bless them. The British author will cite that and claim that it's relevant to South Asia. But they get in their head that jihad, as a is does three things essentially. The first is it exists, and it's important that we make that an argument because um, the authors that we that, that I studied really want to make sure that everyone knows that a legal requirement for for war exists because that seems novel and scary. And the second thing that jihad does is not only it exists, but it has been used in the past, specifically against non-Muslim rulers. And the British are really eager to say, hey, that's us. We are non-Muslim rulers, and we are taking over lots of places in the Muslim world. Um, and so we are at risk of of being threatened with jihad. And then the third part is this racialization part, which is all Muslims, because they have to say yes to everything in their tradition, in this worldview, not in mine, right? Um and because we are foreign invaders who are decidedly not Muslim, will at some point rebel. We know that for a fact, is essentially the thesis statement of folks like Hunter. And so for me, that jihad exists, that folks have declared jihad or a, a just war, and that's kind of the way that he thinks about it. That fact; Those facts sort of very quickly slide into... And Muslims are required to perform this task, regardless of time, of space, of context. And thus, you see a really quick collapse between jihad existing and Muslims existing, to Muslims necessarily being jihadi, to any Muslim under British rule being a threat to the crown.
0: So as, as a final uh, substantive uh, question, Elise again, I'm going to ask you a very broad uh, question so so, so uh, excuse me for that. but I was wondering if you could if you could comment on the way in which you see this book. Let's take a step back uh, and and have you comment on the way you see this book contributing to or intervening in the study of religion more broadly speaking? I mean one of the key uh, interventions of this book is that it is having us rethink the category of religion. Um, uh, in relation to a particular event and the memories and the traumas associated with that event. But in some ways, at uh, the crux of this book is an argument for a certain rethinking of the category of religion. So how how would you sort of describe uh, the intervention of this book in the broader field of religious studies and with oh, the, the kind of uh, intervention that you're making in terms of the way we approach the category of religion? How would you sort of describe that intervention?
1: I think i describe it in two ways, the first is a little bit lofty i I really think the more I study and you know how it is. I feel like the more we exist in this field as scholars, the more aware of how little I know I become, and yet the more assured that what I know has something special to say about some, about about our broader field I become as well. It's just like strange paradox in some ways, but I'm More and more convinced that we can't think about religion without thinking about India, right? It is one of these intro to religious studies, intro to theory and methods axioms that the imperial universe helps us write the history of religion. And as English speakers who rely on, who rely in some ways too much on Anglophone writings, to to skip out on India Makes no sense, right like this is where the British had most of their of their military. this is where this is the jewel of the of the crown, so to speak, and while there, folks are producing unbelievable amounts of information, not just about um the inhabitants of India, though that is the goal, but but truly the inhabitants of the rest of their empire and at, at its height, the British Empire is the largest. Muslim empire, right? Like it, it controls swaths of land that have the most Muslims living in it at one time. And so I, the lof- my first lofty understanding of this book is if we are not thinking critically about India, and if we are not thinking critically about the transfer, the bloody and brutal transfer of power between the Mughal empire and the British Empire and all of the definitional shifts that come with it, as we think about religion, we've misunderstood the history of our own field Because so much of this data comes from the experience of those authors and observers and, uh, and primary sources that get sent back to the metropoles in that moment. And the second goal I have for this book, or the second if I were to step back and say, what is this doing? I actually want it to really help us think about um, how religions are not races, and Islam is not a race. But Muslims have and continue to be racialized in a very predictable way, and that is around violence, and particularly around this language of jihad as jihad is both a threat, um a, like a violent threat in the way it's understood here, but also as a, um an underlying at any moment someone who seems okay could not be. Which is which is where I'm talking about that is how I describe Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Right? Like he's a servant of the Empire. He is knighted by the Queen for his heroic deeds during the Great Rebellion. And yet, even he can't escape being labeled as a potential rebel, a potential jihadi. And so that kind of racialization that we see, I feel like is pretty predictable in the imperial and post-imperial and post-colonial spaces that we exist in. And I want us to think more critically about that. I want us to think more critically about how we inherit words like jihad, and use them today as if they're not insanely loaded in our current moment, but also loaded in ways that might have bigger historical legacies than we think about.
0: So as we come uh, to the end of our time, Elise, could you share with us uh, what's the next project? What uh, is the next thing that you're planning on uh, working on?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm collecting information on global, essentially, parlaying this racialization of Muslims into a more global project and thinking about how Muslims have been racialized um, between and among different colonial spaces and thinking about that in terms of legacies with contemporary um, Islamophobia and anti-Muslim rhetoric.
0: Indian Muslim Minorities and the 1857 Rebellion, Religion, Rebels, and Jihad, published by Ivy Torres this year, 2017. Uh, thank you so much, Elise, for this wonderful book, uh, for giving us so much to think about and wrestle with, and for your time today on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, a, a treat and pleasure listening uh, uh, to you speak about your book and uh, reading and learning uh, from your book. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to, to chat with you about it. Thanks for having me.
0: So this was my conversation with Professor Elise Morganston first on her wonderful new book, Indian Muslim Minorities, and the 1857 Rebellion. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I also hope you will join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast on the New Books Network. New Books in Islamic Studies. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Until next time, take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Oh, 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 oh,